Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS. This is American Paranoia. How the First World War Triggered a Wave of Xenophobia and a Red Scare by Geoffrey Wheatcroft from the issue of the 24th of February 2023. Geoffrey Wheatcroft's most recent book is Churchill's Shadow, An Astonishing Life and a Dangerous Legacy, published in 2021. In 1912, Woodrow Wilson was an unlikely Democratic candidate for the presidency a sometime law professor and president of Princeton who'd only served in public office for two years as governor of New Jersey. But then it would be an unusual election, with a three-way fight. When the incumbent William Howard Taft defeated Theodore Roosevelt, his predecessor in the White House for the Republican nomination, Roosevelt ran as a progressive, splitting the Republican vote and allowing Wilson to win the presidency with little more than two-fifths of the popular vote. Even now, there are American liberals who look back on Wilson's first term in 1913 to 1917 as a golden age, with its trust-busting, tax and banking reform, and eight-hour day for railway workers, making it the last presidency of the progressive era. That left little time for international affairs, and when Americans heard the distant thunder of war from Europe in 1914, most of them had no wish to join it. The United States barely existed as a military power, its 100,000-strong army had sufficed for the extermination of the indigenous inhabitants and the brutal suppression of rebellions in the newly annexed Philippines, following the advice to take up the white man's burden in Kipling's poem of 1899, which is subtitled The United States and the Philippine Islands, but was tiny by European standards. No free American troops had ever set foot in Europe, 
and Wilson was able to campaign successfully for re-election in 1916 on the slogan, He Kept Us Out of the War. Barely had he been inaugurated the next spring than he took America into it. He was blamed then and has been blamed since. Most recently, Michael Kazin, in War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914-1918, published in 2017, added to the voices saying that the US should not have taken part. But Wilson was at once under strong domestic pressure and severe German provocation. Roosevelt told Senator Henry Cabot Lodge from Massachusetts, one of the last of the Brahmin New England Republicans and Wilson's most bitter foe, if he does not go to war with Germany, I shall skin him alive. And in early 1917, the German resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare, along with the grotesque Zimmermann telegram urging Mexico to attack her northern neighbour, impelled Wilson to act. On April 2nd, 1917, he asked Congress for a declaration of war, and he received it on April 6th. This is the starting point of American Midnight the latest of Adam Hochschild's remarkably good books. In To End All Wars, The Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914-1918, published in 2011, he described the early years of the Great War as it affected England by way of a pattern of personal relationships, and he now turns to his own country. After the US formally entered the war, it took little practical part in it for nearly a year. That summer and autumn saw what Churchill called the ghastly crime of Passchendaele, one more fruitless British assault with appalling casualties. But by the time that the last great German offensive on the Western Front began on March the 21st, 1918, driving a huge hole in the British line, no organised American formations had yet gone into battle, and fewer than a thousand American soldiers had died. It wasn't until the summer that American forces played a real, rather than potential, role on the battlefield. Yet whatever American entry did to the balance of the war, it had a most dramatic effect in and on the US itself. The country was convulsed by a spasm of nativist hysteria and hatred. As Hochschild says, never was the raw underside of our nation's life more revealingly on display than from 1917 to 1921. For him, the events of these years amount to a crisis in America's democracy, one that he thinks too few people know about today. A friend of Wilson's reported his saying apprehensively, once lead this people into war, and they'll forget there was ever such a thing as tolerance. Hochschild cautions that this might be apocryphal, but had Wilson said it, it would have been all too true. The first victims were German-Americans. Over the previous century, six million Germans had emigrated to the US, more than any other nationality apart from the British, and they'd played a large part in everything from musical life to building both the Lutheran and Roman Catholic churches. Now, anyone with a German name was treated as potentially disloyal, and many such names were quickly changed. Koenig became king. The Frankfurter became the hot dog. Hoke's child himself hadn't realised that the Lennox Hill Hospital, close to where he grew up in Manhattan, had once been the German hospital and dispensary, with a Kaiser Wilhelm pavilion. But changing names didn't stem the violence. A Methodist minister said that it was the Christian duty of Americans to decorate convenient lampposts with German spies and agents of the Kaiser, native or foreign-born. A Minnesota pastor was tarred and feathered after he'd been heard praying in German with a dying woman. 
and in Collinsville, Illinois, a gang set upon Robert Prager and killed him. The murderers were tried, holding little American flags in court, and were acquitted by the jury in 45 minutes. When a war bond was floated, anyone who failed to buy bonds was liable to be denounced or subjected to physical violence. Congress legislated for a draft, but with mixed results. Three million men eligible to register for the draft failed to do so. 338,000 who were registered never turned up. And altogether, as Hoax Child observes, a higher percentage of Americans resisted the draft during the First World War than during the Vietnam War. Although in the latter case, many Americans, especially the better educated and better off, found easier ways than open resistance to avoid the draft. In Britain, conscientious objectors were sometimes harshly treated. But the American story was more savage, with conscientious objectors hanged all day by shackled wrists, with their feet barely touching the floor, and sometimes forced to watch military executions. War fever intensified the persecution of radicals, socialists and labour unions, or one union in particular. The Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW, otherwise the Wobblies, or I Won't Work, was a unique syndicalist body that mounted a challenge far beyond its numbers of barely 150,000 members. Or so it certainly seemed to business, newspapers and politicians, with headlines predicting a reign of terror, and the irrepressible Roosevelt calling the Wobblies unhung traitors. In fact, plenty were hung or attacked in other ways. After the tarring and feathering of a group of wobblies in Tulsa, National Guardsmen and corporate detectives killed dozens more. When Frank Little, a wobbly organiser, was brutally lynched in Montana, Thomas Marshall, Wilson's vice president, quipped that a little hanging goes a long way. An Espionage Act and a Sedition Act were passed, giving the state-wide powers to curtail free speech. But Albert Sidney Burleson, the postmaster general, hadn't needed that to suppress socialist journals, of which there were more than a hundred, daily, weekly and monthly. He simply withdrew their mailing privileges and destroyed their circulations. While William Lamar, the chief legal officer of the post office, said, I know exactly what I am after, pro-Germanism, pacifism and highbrowism. Within seven months of American entry into the war, the Bolshevik Revolution presaged Russian withdrawal from it, while giving the Wilson administration further pretext for domestic repression, as well as disastrously dividing the left, and in the fullness of time effectively ruining socialism. A new Bureau of Investigation, forerunner of the FBI, energetically kept watch on political meetings and infiltrated radical groups its men sometimes acting as agents provocateurs, a foretaste of the days to come when at least a sixth of the members of the minuscule American Communist Party would be FBI agents. Even before American entry into the war, Albert Briggs, a Chicago advertising man, had created, with official encouragement, the American Protective League, a vigilante group organised along military lines and appealing, as Hoax Child says, to men beyond military age seeking martial glory. They were issued with a badge and code names such as A372 or B49, as they went hunting for spies, saboteurs and dissidents. With American communism as yet unborn, the objects of official and semi-official persecution were democratic socialists or anarchists, notably Eugene Debs and Emma Goldman. Like his English contemporary George Lansbury, the gentle Debs combined democratic socialism with Christianity and pacifism. 
He had been the fourth party candidate in 1912, winning 6% of the vote, enough to alarm many Americans. Now his opposition to the war ensured that Debs would be hounded and imprisoned under the Espionage Act. In the words of one police informer, Goldman was doing tremendous damage. She is womanly, a remarkable orator, tremendously sincere and carries conviction. If she is allowed to continue here, she cannot help but have a great influence. She was not allowed to, but was likewise imprisoned and finally deported to Russia, where she was lucky to survive. She escaped back to the West to publish My Disillusionment in Russia in 1923, one of the first honest books about Soviet tyranny. Since the Espionage and Sedition Acts had been drafted by the Justice Department under the Attorney General Thomas Gregory, his resignation in early 1919 came as a great relief to progressives such as Senator Robert La Follette, who had criticised the war and war fever, and been in turn denounced and disowned by the University of Wisconsin, his home state. La Follette welcomed the appointment of Gregory's successor, A. Mitchell Palmer, a Quaker who had called the American Protective League a grave menace and recommended clemency for several hundred people imprisoned under the Espionage Act. With such a man in a key role, many hoped, Hoke's child writes, the harsh repression of the war years might at last be on its way out. Those hopes were soon dashed. In November 1919, the affable Quaker gave his name to the notorious Palmer Raids, conducted on radical or merely suspect offices and meetings, particularly where recent immigrants were to be found. The offices of the Union of Russian Workers in a dozen cities were raided, and in Detroit, agents interrogated all 1,500 theatre-goers watching a Russian-language play. We shall be dependent upon the steel, oil and financial magnets, Wilson had foreseen in a lucid moment. They will run the country. They certainly did very well. From 1914 to 1918, the United States Steel Corporation's annual income increased more than tenfold, its profits eighteenfold, and those magnets found the government useful in another way, with twenty men leading a Pennsylvania steel strike rounded up by Palmer's Raiders. While Hoaxchild reflects how curious that outburst of martial zeal was, what made this grand purse still stranger is that there was no threat at all, military or political, to the American homeland. Unlike French soil, no US soil was invaded. Unlike London, no American city was bombed. Yet anti-aircraft guns were set up in places as unlikely as New Haven. In America, by contrast with Europe, any danger of Red Revolution or even anything resembling socialism was negligible. Debs's 6%, compared with the 17% of the vote won in 1914 by the French socialists led by Jean Jouret shortly before his assassination, which would increase to 20% after the war, the same share Labour won in the 1918 British general election. At the centre of the story stands Wilson himself, with the self-confidence befitting a professor in an age when, as Hoaxchild says from what sounds like unhappy experience, someone in that role was not a performer struggling to draw students' attention away from their cell phones, but a source of moral authority. He was vain enough scarcely to need his confidant Edward House to tell him that the part he was destined to play in this world tragedy was the noblest part that has ever come to a son of man. 
Wilson had already, in 1915, told a gathering of Civil War veterans that we created this nation not to serve ourselves, but to serve mankind. Or, as Hochschild puts it, Wilson had long acted as if the United States and he himself were morally superior to the squabbling countries of the old world. While taking the country to war, he insisted that we have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquest, no dominion. We fight without rancour and without selfish object, seeking nothing for ourselves. European leaders found this display of virtue wearisome, as the cynical Georges Clemenceau said when Wilson proclaimed his sententious and ill-formed 14 points in January 1918. Le bon Dieu n'avait Yet, if Wilson insisted that this would be a virtuous war in contrast to all the evil previous wars in history, he personified the hypocrisy that amounted to almost psychopathic cognitive dissonance. Wilson was preaching self-determination and democratic rights in Europe, but what of his own country? A Virginian and first Southerner to be elected president since the Civil War, Wilson was the son of a Presbyterian minister who'd been a chaplain in the Confederate Army and who believed that slavery was ordained by the Bible. Wilson himself had done everything he could as president of Princeton to stop black students entering the college, and his administration actually resegregated the civil service. When Boaston found time to spare from silencing radical journals, he said it was intolerable that black and white employees should work together. He determined to stamp out those offensive Negro papers which constantly appeal to class and race prejudice. As Hoke's child says, awful as Frank Little's death was, millions of Americans, however, were already too familiar with lynching. The Ku Klux Klan had been reformed in 1915, and there were lynchings across the South year by year, some almost too horrible to describe in detail. Many black men enlisted in the army, and some who were allowed to go to the front fought with distinction. But southern politicians were alarmed that they were being taught to use firearms. Senator James Vardaman of Mississippi said that black veterans should be prevented from returning to the South, as their contacts with French women must have raised their expectations. When black people tried to escape northwards, they merely met more racist violence. In July 1917, there was a ferocious race riot in East St. Louis, in which as many as a hundred black people may have been killed, while many hundreds more fled. The Amsterdam News in Harlem pointed to the irony that black soldiers fighting for the rights of Serbs and Poles would return to lynching at home. As Hochschild says, while Wilson piously insisted that the world must be made safe for democracy, there was no danger that the south of his own country would be made safe for democracy. Nevertheless, when he arrived in Europe in December 1918, Wilson was greeted as a redeemer. But it would only be a little unkind to say that he resembled Ferdinand Alf, the editor of the Evening Pulpit in The Way We Live Now, who combined an air of wonderful omniscience with an ignorance hardly surpassed by its arrogance. Wilson had never visited Europe before would never visit Central and Eastern Europe at all, and knew very little about their peoples, whose destiny he tried to change. As John Maynard Keynes, who was present at the Paris Peace Conference, bluntly observed, Wilson had no plan, no scheme, no constructive ideas whatever for clothing with the flesh of life the commandments which he'd thundered from the White House. On one such commandment he'd set his heart. His fourteenth and last point said that, 
a general association of nations must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to great and small states alike. Such a League of Nations was indeed created, and it remained only for Wilson to persuade his own country of its merits. But even if he thought himself a great international statesman, he was a hopeless politician. He regarded political opponents with implacable hostility, or even hatred, notably Cabot Lodge, and he was so narrow-minded or obtuse that he took no Republicans with him to Paris for the conference. On his return he faced a new conflict, and a new campaign for the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations to be ratified. As this dispute grew more bitter, Wilson set out on a whistle-stop tour of the country, arguing the merits of the League to the people of Ohio, North Dakota and California. But, as Cabot Lodge grimly and correctly said, the only votes that mattered were not in those far-flung states. They were in the Senate, which had the authority to ratify treaties. And there Wilson failed. The treaty wasn't ratified, and the US didn't join the League of Nations, hobbling it from the start. This crushing defeat came to a dying man. Wilson had had one, possibly two severe strokes, and would have one more the following spring, leaving his left side paralysed. For more than a year, the country was effectively without a chief executive. By 1920, with the war won, peace made after a fashion, and Wilson lying incapacitated in the White House, the great fear persisted. A panic spread that on May Day there would be a red rising throughout the country. In many cities, the National Guard as well as armed police were out in force, with machine gun posts installed on the streets of Boston. As Hoaxchild's next two-word paragraph reads, nothing happened. The threat was entirely imaginary. But a darker side to America had emerged into daylight, and American exceptionalism had taken on an ugly aspect. It's tempting to contrast Debs, persecuted and imprisoned, with Ramsay MacDonald, who opposed British entry into the war in 1914, resigned as Labour leader, and suffered no worse punishment than expulsion from Moray Golf Club. Within ten years, he was Prime Minister, and the hysterical dread of socialism, evinced by the American elites, again contrasts with George V on the day he appointed MacDonald. As the King wrote to his mother Queen Alexandra, they have different ideas to ours as they're all socialists, but they ought to be given a chance and ought to be treated fairly. If nothing happened that May Day, something worse had happened, as America drew in upon itself. Behind the assaults on radicals lay a deeper resentment or even hatred of immigrants. Tens of millions of immigrants had arrived in the US in the 40 years before the First World War. Italians, Poles, Jews and many others they'd been greeted with intense hostility. Albert Johnson, a congressman from Washington State who plays a significant part in Hoaxchild's story, railed in the house against wops, bohunks, coolies and oriental offscourings. As a further plus de change, a newspaper he owned derided conservationists who tremble every time a tree is cut down. Nor was he a lone crank. Theodore Roosevelt insisted that this is a nation, not a polyglot boarding house. And Wilson himself said that men of the sturdier stocks of the north of Europe had given way to multitudes of men of the lowest class from the south of Italy, and men of the meaner sort out of Hungary and Poland. 
Roosevelt died in January 1919, still dreaming of a political comeback. Wilson remained in the White House, incapable of any action, until his successor was inaugurated in March 1921. He lingered on until February 1924. That successor was the Republican Warren Harding, who had campaigned calling for immigration to be restricted. But then so had his Democratic opponent, James Cox. One awful coda to the story is described by Hoaxchild. The massacre of black residents in May 1921 in Tulsa, the town where the Wobblies had been persecuted four years earlier. Tulsa had an unusually, if comparatively prosperous, black community, with a district known as the Black Wall Street. On the usual spurious rumour that a black man had threatened a white woman, white mobs rampaged through this quarter for two days, killing, looting and setting scores of buildings on fire. The National Guard intervened only to arrest black people, though it's reckoned that at least 300 were killed. The best explanation the Los Angeles Times could offer was that Bolshevik propaganda was the principal cause of the race riot. Another might have been quoted in American Midnight. In December 1920, the Times reported that America is seriously alarmed by the wave of immigration from the poverty-stricken portions of Europe. In Poland alone, 311,000 persons have applied for passports to the United States and a commissioner of the Hebrew Sheltering and Aid Society, who recently returned from that country, states that if there were in existence a ship that could hold three million human beings, the three million Jews in Poland would board to escape to America. But as the report added, the leaders of the Republican Party regard the flood of immigrants as a menace to America and the Americans, and have decided to give it immediate attention in Congress. So they did with harshly restrictive immigration acts passed in 1921 and 1924, designed to maintain the predominance of those sturdier stocks, leaving those three million Polish Jews, among others, to their fate. No one who reads Adam Hochschild's admirable but sombre book, while also watching Ken Burns's harrowing new documentary The US and the Holocaust, will feel quite the same about the land of the free or the Statue of Liberty. A hundred years ago, the tired, poor, huddled masses may have yearned to breathe free, but that was just what was denied them. You are listening to the TLS. This is American Paranoia, how the First World War triggered a wave of xenophobia and a red scare, by Geoffrey Wheatcroft, from the issue of the 24th of February 2023. It was read by Les Smith, for Noah. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.